Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Infectious Dialogue podcast, where we share the stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Mike. And I'm Naman. Today, we have a very exciting episode with our guest, Dr. Nahid Dosani, who joins us in our recurring segment, Growing Up in Medicine. This was a really exciting episode where we got to talk a lot about Dr. Dosani's work with palliative care, especially with people experiencing homelessness. And a little bit about his involvement in public health measures and trying to motivate young individuals and Canadians far and wide about implementing safe practices during the COVID-19 pandemic and how he's used social media as a platform to sort of get his message across. Social media, home care, homelessness, all of these sound like very interesting topics that we're going to feature in this episode. We're so proud to feature Dr. Nahid Dasani and the remarkable achievements he's made in his practice and hope that it's a source of inspiration for our listeners also. Please enjoy this episode of Infectious Dialogue with Dr. Nahid Dasani. So we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Nahid Dasani today. He did his BSc at the Ontario Tech University. He went on to do his MD at McMaster, woohoo a fellow McMaster alumni uh, from 2008 to 2011. He went on to do his family medicine residency at St. Michael's Hospital at the University of Toronto. And uh, finally, he also did the enhanced skills program in palliative medicine following his residency, after which he decided to start a program called PEACH and PEACH stands for Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more about PEACH in our conversation today, uh, but just a quick thing that we'd love to highlight. But before we move on, We'd love to take a deep dive behind the CV. So thanks, Grinder, for the introduction. Uh, welcome as well, Dr. Dasani. What we like to do, this is a segment we like to call like growing up in medicine. So we kind of want to give our listeners a better understanding of who you are, like not just as a doctor, but who you are when you're not practicing medicine. Uh, so maybe if you want to just give yourself a quick introduction and tell us a little bit about yourself. Fair enough. And thank you uh, both for having me on today. And uh, thanks for all the listeners who are listening wherever you are. Um, I was born and raised in Scarborough, Ontario, uh, to two parents who came to Canada as refugees in the 1970s from Uganda. Uh, so they actually came to Canada fleeing war and persecution. So I grew up in a home that was really focused on social justice, community well-being, and really, frankly, the social determinants of health. And as I went through my training, I started to realize that inequity in the social determinants of health in some communities and in many communities actually related to inequities in the structural determinants of health. And uh, that's a lot of jargon, <laughs> um, uh, but was very inspired by colleagues who were doing work in international settings for working with Medicine Sans Frontieres and Oxfam and found myself at McMaster University where I started to, you know, get really into social justice initiatives and um, found myself working in, in residency at the University of Toronto, uh, providing health Healthcare for people experiencing homelessness, and the rest was kind of history after that. A fellow Scarborough person. That's awesome. I am also <laughs> also grew up in Scarborough, so it's always great to get uh, another perspective from someone who grew up in the same area. It's, it's incredible to see kind of how, uh, well, at least pe speaking from my own experience, the multicultural background of, of Scarborough and how that informs kind of heading into medicine and, and what medicine looks like for being tailored towards a, a community that looks like Scarborough does. 
For sure. And, you know, for those who are listening, who are looking to pursue a, a career in healthcare, or for those who are in healthcare, for example, or pursuing, you know, postgraduate studies, I always say that really there is no formula. There are some general principles that people talk about, but really, you know, if you follow your passions um, and you strive to achieve, you know, strive to, to, towards your passions with compassion, you will be able to write your own narrative. And a lot of that, you know, for me comes from growing up uh, with parents who came to Canada as refugees, um, you know, a, a real, you know, humanitarian and social justice background and really thinking about, you know, improving our communities through uh, social well-being in the future. Yeah, that's a really excellent point you make, Dr. Desani, about following passion and kind of uh, taking from mentors and following down a path that kind of inspires you. You spoke a lot about social justice and your exposure growing up. Did you know you, I guess the question is, uh, did you always want to be a doctor? Uh, or if it wasn't medicine, what do you think you'd be doing right now? I think I always wanted to use, I, I always knew that I wanted to use my education as a springboard to derive structural change and equity within our communities. And for a short period of time, that was me being an engineer, but I'm not so good at numbers and and and, um, and physics and, and things like that. Um, so that didn't last long. And then it was actually, you know, as a journalist and, um, I've, you know, had a real passion for, you know, writing um, and uh, speaking and then found myself within within healthcare, and I started to realize that within healthcare, uh, at the bedside, um, in our neighborhoods, and even at a kind of macro level, at a population level, there are real opportunities to derive equity, health equity within our communities. And health means many things. Health is not just healthcare, right? Um, and so it became a, a real passion of mine and took off from there. Yeah, and, and you mentioned it best. Uh, healthcare isn't just uh, about medicine, right? There's all these other aspects that inform how someone's health uh, kind of is built up over their life. And one of the, the social determinants of health that you've been focused on uh, as of recently is talking about palliative care and palliative medicine and increasing access as well as education uh, around palliative care in the homeless population in the GTA or people who are experiencing homelessness, I should say. Um, so did you have any exposure to homelessness as a social issue growing up? Or how did you become kind of aware and alert to the, the large problem that's going on and, and how, what we can do to uh, sort of help it as medical professionals? No, thanks for that, Grinder. And I think it's really important to note that access to medical care, a doctor, nurse, clinic, or hospital barely cracks the top 10 factors that impact health. The top 10 factors that we derive is the, the social determinants of health, with the number one being uh, income, followed by a list of factors, including education, housing, social networks, for example. And so this came, um, this really hit home for me when I was a first-year resident training at the University of Toronto and started doing primary care rotations and working in shelters to support primary care for people experiencing homelessness. When I came across um, a young gentleman, he was in his early 30s, who had a widespread head and neck cancer and presented in pain crisis to the shelter. And he didn't trust healthcare. He didn't trust social services. He'd been on the streets. He had schizophrenia. He was um, using drugs due to a substance use disorder. And it was a really tough time for him. And he was quite disfigured at the time. And um, I tried to build relationship and trust with him. And I did that, uh, did actually achieve that. And then got to the shelter the next day because I was excited to be start up a pain management plan for him and get him to a local cancer hospital. And then um, I learned that he had died. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. His friends um, at the shelter said that he had actually died by suicide because of inadequate 
pain control, which was actually a lack of access to palliative care. And this was a very traumatic event in my training. And I took some time off to learn about palliative care. And what I realized was a huge health inequity issue was access to healthcare for people experiencing homelessness and specifically access to palliative care for people experiencing homelessness. And so in 2014, after pursuing a palliative medicine residency, I started the PEACH program palliative education and care for the homeless, a mobile palliative care program that aims to support people's needs with palliative care needs in the city of Toronto. And um, six years later, here we are talking about it now. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've learned more about Peach uh, through our own experiences. And, and I think Numan will share a story a little bit later about uh, his personal experience with Peach. Um, but one thing that I do would love to highlight is the education portion within Peach. And I think that palliative care is a domain in medicine that is maybe misunderstood uh, by a lot of people, including those who do practice medicine. And we were fortunate enough to sit down with Dr. Jose Pereira uh, of Pallium Canada and the Department of Palliative Care head at McMaster, who shared with us what palliative care does and does not entail in an earlier episode. And we'll play a clip here for our listeners. But the question for you would be, Dr. Desani, uh, what would you say is the biggest misconception that you had about palliative care before you immersed yourself in the space? I'm so glad you got to speak to Dr. Pereira, who's an absolute legend in this field. And, you know, uh, I listen to what he says, because <laughs> what he says is the truth. But I would say that the biggest misconception that I have, I had, and many have in palliative care is that it is just about end of life care. And in, in actuality, palliative approaches to care or the palliative approach benefits many people with serious diseases early on in their disease trajectory. And that in many disease states like cancer, if people receive palliative care early, like right at the stage of time of diagnosis, people feel better and actually live longer. There's a survival benefit. So now we have multiple reasons to provide palliative care early. And it's not just early palliative care, as some call it. I think it's just timely palliative care. So that's a huge misnomer out there. Palliative care is an exciting field to be in right now. It, it's, it's medicine, it's pain and symptom management, it's emotional, psycho, psychosocial support. It's addressing the social determinants of health for people. It's really wraparound care that, you know, really is based on on compassion. So if, if anybody has an opportunity to get training or elective opportunities in this field, I would really recommend it. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for highlighting uh, the ins and outs of palliative care and, and some misconceptions. Um, but I think Numan would love to share a personal anecdote of his about Peach. Yeah, thanks, Grinder. Uh, and like Grinder said, I think that's really important that you highlight Dr. Desani. Like it's the whole person. It's not just end of life care. And there's the like not just the survival benefit, but just how you can sort of ease someone's pain through focusing on their their whole care. The personal anecdote, I, it's not much of an anecdote, but it's, uh, I, I think a few years ago, uh, Dr. Desani, correct me if I'm wrong, you were on an episode of White Coat Black Art talking about Peach. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I I heard about Peach then when I was in the midst of my interview preparation, I came across this podcast and I heard this episode in particular and I, I really remember it resonating with me because you spoke about this concept of healing circles and remembering even not just the patients that you have, but the patients you've lost. Uh, and I, I think that really, um, it, it really touched me and it really re-motivated me in a time where it was very difficult uh, a lot of stuff going on, school pressures, but really reinvigorated me to continue striving hard to get into this field of medicine. Wow, Naman, thank yeah. you so much for um, sharing that. And I, I just want to say that, you know, having now provided palliative care for people experiencing homelessness 
for for six years and the peach program has grown you know one of the things that we've learned is that there's a lot of emotional pain and a lot of trauma that our our social care workers and healthcare workers are experiencing to support people who experience homelessness as they die and there's not a lot of tools out there to support people and that this leads to moral injury and compassion fatigue and what some call burnout and, and frankly turnover in staff and so we derive these grief circles as a way to really meet people's needs to support the emotional needs of staff who aren't trained to deal with palliative care or death and dying. And, you know, due to the homelessness housing crisis and due to the opioid death crisis, where we're seeing over 45 people die in the province of Ontario every week due to an opioid overdose death, this is more important than ever before. We, we think these circles really derive resilience. Um, and I'm happy to tell you a bit more about how they work, but I'm glad to hear that it was inspiring for you. No, it definitely was. And I think it's, we, we learned so much about the importance of uh, like avoiding burnout and mindfulness. And this, this seemed like a very practical application. And the anecdote goes a little bit further where I had the, like a very brief chance to meet Dr. Brian Goldman at a conference that we had at OMSW Toronto 2019. And I actually pointed out that that particular episode and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, were you at that conference? I feel like he mentioned yeah. that Dr. DeSantis. I was, yeah yourself yeah I was yeah yeah so uh and I never I never really got her I guess you, you were busy or couldn't find your booth but I guess now full circle coming back and just saying how much that uh it, it really did affect me and I, I wanted to take this time to kind of give you the chance to maybe speak about the formation of Peach and how it sort of changed from the concept implementation and and now six years later what it looks like from well an- yeah I know Thank you. Thank you, Numen. And it was a real honor to be at OMSW last year. I, I got to actually perform a spoken word poem and um, tell, a, tell a story. And it was really an inspiring time. And, and the next generation of, of healthcare practitioners and health workers like yourselves are, is going to be awesome. I can tell. The PEACH program um, started in 2014, and it really started with a doctor and a street nurse, um, my colleague Namrud Ahmed, and I just kind of driving around, actually, and hearing about people who were, you know, in need of palliative care at different respites, shelters, and drop-ins, and providing health care. And six years later, the program has grown. We care for between 100 and 110 clients on caseload at any given time. We have four part-time palliative care physicians working with a health navigator. Uh, a street nurse uh, palliative care coordinator, a home care coordinator, a home and community care team, which includes PSWs, nurses, occupational therapy, and other disciplines, and integrated relationships with the homelessness sector, and of course, the housing sector as well. We're really honored to be a part of a national community of programs that provide mobile palliative care outreach for people experiencing homelessness, including uh, places like Victoria, Edmonton, Calgary. And we're really proud and grateful that Health Canada in their palliative care framework, which was released recently, um, named PEACH as a best practice in palliative care health equity and delivery. And um, we're really honored by that. And it's it's a sense of great responsibility we have to continue to push this field and push the palliative care community, but also the healthcare community to thinking about novel ways to derive healthcare for people who don't traditionally access healthcare in the same ways. And that's really what Peach is all about. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's a really nice summary. And I, what a highlight for me, and I guess what I want to really commend is just recognizing a gap 
in the healthcare system. I think there's many gaps in the system and there's more and more we're going to discover throughout our training, but not only recognizing it, but going ahead and like devising a way to kind of address it. And I think that's really amazing. And I think I'd be remiss to not ask about how Peach has been affected by COVID because I think the people experiencing homeless population has been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And I, I don't know how you've continued to maintain it or how the program has shifted in this kind of difficult time that we're in right now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it goes without saying that the way we've designed healthcare, particularly home care for people in our communities who have palliative care needs who experience homelessness is incongruent. We like, think about it, guys, we even called it home care. How do you think people experiencing homelessness feel about that? It's actually structurally incongruent all the way from the fact that many communities require a phone number and address to support home care for people to the fact that clinicians and home care agencies don't even have models to deliver health care for people experiencing homelessness. So what we are doing is addressing a gap in that way, in addition to deriving a palliative care for people, you know, dealing with these situations. But when you think about COVID, um, we, we've actually, uh, I'm not sure if this is surprising or not, our caseload numbers have doubled amidst this pandemic. We're seeing more referrals, probably because of the strains that we're seeing on hospital systems uh, where and health facilities where people are being discharged or, or many of the people we care for want to be discharged because they don't want to be in a hospital where they're at risk of getting COVID-19, for example. But also the fact that people are presenting with later in their disease because the pandemic has created a stress on our health systems. And as a result, people are not getting the kinds of care that they would normally receive around kidney care or cancer care, for example, or surgery. And so people are progressing in their disease. I'd be so irresponsible if I didn't mention, you know, again, the opioid overdose death epidemic, where more and more people are dying than ever before. Many of our clients have died from an opioid overdose death. And that's really sad to report that even people with palliative care needs are being impacted in this community. We continue to go out and do visits in person. Of course, it's it's troubling with, you know, PPE and, you know, a lot of palliative care is built around empathy and compassion and human connection. And when you're wearing a face mask and people can't see you smile and, you know, there's there's language barriers, it becomes really challenging, right, as you can imagine. We've leveraged some virtual aspects of care, particularly more, more phone than anything, because many of our clients don't have, you know, smartphones, for example, but in cases that where it's worked, it's been helpful. But it's been a very traumatic time for the people we care for. More people are living on the streets and in shelters than ever before. Uh, you see encampments, the tents that are lining, lining cities across Canada. And, um, you know, with that said, there is some hope. We've seen, you know, different levels of government work together in ways they normally don't work together to improve, you know, supporting housing, at least temporarily for people amidst COVID. But uh, what remains to be seen is whether we can use this pandemic as a way to end homelessness for good in Canada. And that's certainly a hope for our team. Absolutely. And I think that a kind of running theme throughout the interview so far has been the message that you have to deliver has been quite powerful and it's one that needs to be heard by more people who are working in healthcare. And it's also one that maybe isn't discussed as much as it should. So when we come back from the break, I'd love to take a deeper dive into how you get your message out there, how you communicate these really important ideas and what other physicians can do uh, and take maybe a page from your book and learn how to communicate these ideas that are important to them as well in a similar way. Sounds good, thanks so much. Hey everyone, if you enjoy listening to the ID podcast and want to hear more from us, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the ID podcast. If there's a topic you'd like for us to cover in a future episode, please feel free to message us or send us a tweet. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode.
Okay, so now that we've had a chance to plug our own social media, I'd love to get our uh, opinion from Dr. Desani on the power of social media in his own communications. Um, so in particular, I've noticed that you use the platform TikTok quite frequently to get these messages of healthcare across. Uh, so where did this idea originate from and, and how has the experience been to be TikTok famous? <laughs> you're you're very kind and uh yeah it's been a it's been a fun uh fun journey um uh for sure i actually started using platforms like tiktok to uh, provide education around palliative care for the general audience out there and actually i was quite um, amazed at the response um, we got right away with some videos that really just focused on defining what palliative care was and you know um, shifting public thinking around death and dying and issues related to it and then um what happened was COVID. And I started to post more about COVID specifically around, you know, the, the current guidelines and recommendations about the importance of masking, physical distancing, and it also resonated with people. And I think when I think about the use of TikTok or even platforms like Instagram and Twitter, I, I see the use of social media in the advocate role as, as really, you know, my responsibility. You know, we talk a lot about advocacy at the micro, meso, and macro levels. There are those people who work, you know, and work their whole lives providing excellent patient care and client care and are advocates for the people they care for. There are others who work at like a neighborhood level, like maybe the PEACH program, and that's a level of advocacy. And then there's this macro level of advocacy where you get to push policy at a population level, for example. And I see social media as something that can really make a difference at least the meso and macro level. And it's one thing to provide health care for people experiencing homelessness, but if we're not advocating to end homelessness, to me, those two things go together. So it's a natural complement to the work that we do. And I think what's really important is to remind people who are coming through the ranks um, and thinking about advocacy to use platforms that are innovative and novel. And, you know, one thing I'll tell you guys is I've not had to dance in one TikTok and I do not plan <laughs> on dancing. And it's been successful, so you don't have to dance, right? But uh, that's just me. If you can dance, go ahead. Like, you know, it's, it's a, definitely a tool that you can use. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, you know, all that said, innovative models of social media are, are really important in the advocate role. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing that I will make note of is I've noticed another theme in, I'd love to share a quote from you in an earlier article in which you said, people don't watch press conferences, meet them on the platform they use. Now this same philosophy I can very much see spilling into your healthcare work as well, where you're bringing the medical education, you're also bringing, bringing palliative care to the people where they are, rather than you know forcing them to tangle with a system that hasn't historically been friendly to people like them. You know, that's a really great point. And, and I think what's a central theme to the work that we're involved in is, is being very person-centered about care. And that includes healthcare communications. And so when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and all the messages were being delivered in the middle of the day between 12 and 2 on TV channels that most of my friends under 40 don't actually watch, I was a little bit concerned because I, I'd ask many of my friends, even our, you know, my students, you know, do you, did you, did you see the press conference yesterday? Do you know what the latest guidelines are around COVID and um, many would say, I have no clue what you're talking about. And I was like, why are we not using Instagram and TikTok and, and other platforms to bring these messages home for people to, to make them more bite-sized, more digestible and clearer. And I think that's just like the latest example amidst this pandemic of what we can be doing differently and better. And I hope that some of these lessons that carry forward beyond the pandemic, you know, really thinking about knowing your audience, knowing the message, 
creating pathways for different people who consume media differently to accept those messages. Only then will we be able to change health behavior. That's been so important amidst this pandemic where we're talking about masking, physical distancing, staying home, and guidelines that are truly changing all the time, right? So it's more important than ever. I think that's an excellent point you make, Dr. Desani, that science communication and knowledge translation is such an important part of what we do uh, in the healthcare field. And I think we could go on about uh, effective ways to kind of pass messages along, not just to healthcare trainees, but the general public. But one thing we did want to get from you is your career so far, uh, we spoke a lot of moments that inspired you, but could you maybe speak to maybe a low light in your training so far, maybe a moment or story that almost kind of turned you away from the path you are now? Because given working with vulnerable populations, I'm sure there's been quite many days that are harder than others and how you've kind of dealt with that. Yeah, I can remember during the first wave of the pandemic when there was a week where we had, I believe, six clients in the PEACH program die in the same week. Many clients that we actually knew for a long period of time and some dying in in circumstances that were not ideal for their goals of care around end of life. And, you know, this pandemic and, and leading, you know, being thrust forward to lead a team amidst the pandemic in the community when there was not a lot of guidelines around how to provide healthcare for people in the community and just really um, feeling down and feeling scared. And I and I think if we don't talk about fear and being scared a lot in the healthcare field, and it's almost, I think, sometimes viewed as taboo to actually talk like this. And that's unfortunate. So that's why I'm talking about it, because I think it's important to talk about our vulnerabilities. But I do remember, you know, going into one of these grief circles that we've talked about and finding some some strength and resilience within that, being able to debrief these deaths with my team and working through remembering and and reflecting and and reinvesting in ourselves and and walking out of there with some strength. I think, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, self-care and sometimes that gets kind of boxed into like yoga and running and I don't like yoga and I don't like running and that doesn't mean (laughs) I can't have self-care. I think it's more about critical reflection, right? And that's what the grief circles do. And for some people that's journaling, some people that's diaries and that has helped me get through working with an incredible team and being part of a a collective community that's derived around compassion helps as well. So, you know, I'd say that that was a really difficult period and there have been many since and there'll be many more, right? It's our ability to be, to bounce back and and, and recognize that we're in those zones and those phases is is important too. So I hope this story resonates with people who are listening and in the healthcare community as well. Now that we've had a chance to cover some of the important work that you do and the many hats that you wear, Dr. Desani, I would love to take a bit of a rewind and talk to a younger Nahid for a second. Uh, so there are many causes that deserve and need more people taking them up. What would you tell Nahid in medical school about how to find your own niche and connect with others that share those passions? I'd say, you know, follow your heart and follow your soul, whatever makes your heart sing, whatever creates the harmony between your mind, heart and soul, follow that. Don't walk around uh, with sort of blinders on. I think sometimes in healthcare, particularly in medicine, people are very focused on goals, for example, matching to a very specific specialty. Sometimes, you know, you are in search of an outcome, but sometimes an outcome is in search of you. And you need to be open to that and, and accepting of that and absorbing of those experiences. And if they occur, you know, you need to, you know, really reflect on what that, what that means. I think sometimes also I would tell a future me that, and anybody who's like, you know, pursuing healthcare in the future and a career in healthcare, that there'll be a lot of distractions. You know, there's the distractions that, that come from 
you know, training from status around, you know, different institute, working at institutions, seniority, titles, education, um, money can become a distraction. But if you always put the person you care for at the center of your activities, of your focus, you will never go wrong. And if you put communities, the community that you serve at the center of your focus, you will never uh, stray from a path that connects with your your heart and, and mind and soul. And so I think those are some things that that really resonate for me. And, and, and I can't say I always did this. I fell victim to a lot of these issues uh, as I went through my training. But as I, I look back, those are things that I think I would pass on to people who are pursuing, you know, their training in healthcare. Thanks so much, Dr. Sang. I think that following the passion and just, I think not, not just this pearl of wisdom, but so many packed into the last half an hour have been phenomenal. I know we're wrapping up and I know we're at a hard stop, but I just wanted to give you a final thanks for coming on and sharing your story and an opportunity for you to say any last minute pearls of wisdom. We've gotten plenty already or any projects that you're currently working on and you want our listeners to check out and we'd be happy to link that in the show notes. No, I actually want to thank you for what's been a very uplifting conversation, even for me. And it just really is inspiring to me to hear the future, you know, health workers of the next generation, like you two, having such meaningful conversations and thinking about things that I, I can't say that people in my generation were talking about a lot. So the, the future is very bright and especially with you two in it. I think there's a lot of issues related to COVID equity that, you know, I'm currently, you know, working on. And for those who are interested, interested in following the journey, I'm on Twitter at Nahedd, N-A-H-E-E-D-D, and that's the same for Instagram, and on TikTok at drdr.nahedd. You're more than welcome to join the conversation and the dialogue, and I look forward to seeing you guys out here. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Infectious Dialogue. I always find it interesting listening back to an interview we did a few months ago and kind of the parallels between what's really different in the world, because we recorded this, I think, end of December, and what's really not changed. Uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but uh, I found that was, like, the stuff that we discussed, I think, is still pertinent pandemic-wise, still pertinent for the people experiencing homelessness. It's kind of interesting how much time has passed and not much has changed. Yeah, I agree, Namin, for sure. I think the themes that came up in this interview really are timeless. Yeah, for sure. I I can definitely see what you mean, Namin. I think given that we're all still facing the challenges of the pandemic, especially for vulnerable populations, a lot of these issues really are are timeless. What stuck out for me for the interview uh, was really kind of how Dr. Dasani talked about using his education, a form of privilege towards making structural change specifically looking to challenge practices which seem more dogmatic, like like the name of home care actually involving a home, which really represent a barrier for individuals who are facing homelessness. Yeah, that's a really good point, Mike. I think that's what's really so inspirational about folks like Dr. Dosani who recognize structural inequities in the systems that they're in and really make efforts to try and go ahead and change that. I think that can be seen in him changing this concept of the word home care, recognizing the gap and people experiencing homelessness. The thing that stood out for me is just, I think with the digital world and everyone staying at home and him using social media as a platform to try and reach younger people and reach audiences who may not necessarily understand the reasons why we need to stay at home, the reasons why we need to social distance, the reasons why we need to take this pandemic seriously. He is taking his position and one, I think he would say of privilege, but also one of having a platform 
to disseminate information in a way that's digestible and accepted by many, many individuals. And I think he continues to do that in a very real way and in a very effective way. And I, I find that extremely inspiring. And of course, we can't forget about our resident fact check section. Uh, I don't think we had too many facts for this one, Mike, but I think we mentioned a little bit of another podcast, White Coat Black Art by Dr. Brian Goldman. I think it's a, originally a CBC podcast that really highlights a lot of various stories in medicine and is run by an emergency physician doctor, Dr. Brian Goldman, I think who's an excellent host. And he had Dr. Dosani on for one of his episodes. And during that segment, we were also talking about OMSW. We use this acronym as much as we, in medicine, we use too many acronyms. Uh, OMSW is just our Ontario Medical Students Weekend, which is a gathering of medical students across Ontario, which was held in Toronto in 2019, which was our first year. Uh, and speakers like Dr. Brian Goldman and Dr. Nahid Dosani were both there kind of on this like weekend long event. So just for whoever was confused, what we were referring to, that was an in-person conference. I know it sounds like a wild idea, but they used to exist and not so long ago. And hopefully they'll come back again in the not so distant future. All right. I think I've kind of deliberated on the pandemic enough, Mike. Why don't we go ahead and sign off this episode and give thanks to the people who need it. With that being said, we want to give special thanks to Dr. Nahid Dasani for sharing an inspirational story and his perspective for how to make a difference for patient care, especially those for marginalized populations. If there's another topic you want us to cover next, connect with us on social media. We can be found at the ID podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For this episode, we'd also like to give special thanks to our team members to Naman and Grinder for researching, writing, and hosting this episode, to our writing team, production team, and editing team, which includes Priscilla, Daniel, Isabella, Gunit, and Gori. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in once again to an episode of Infectious Dialogue, where we talk about the stories of medicine and the people behind them. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.